at Power Windows and Doors of Wisconsin. Choose 18 months, no payments and no interest, or $300 off each window, $700 off a Pell entry system, and $1,000 off a patio door. Get details at PellaWI.com. Restrictions apply. See showroom for details. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. The AccuNet Mortgage Talk and Text Line is open now. Give us a call at 855-616-1620. And now, in for Jeff Wagner, here's Tracy Johnson. All right, good afternoon, Wisconsin. I am Tracy Johnson, in for Jeff Wagner, who is... I'm guessing enjoying a much-deserved vacation. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, I'll do a quick, quick introduction. I've been in from time to time uh, with Steve Scafidi and for Steve Scafidi and then WTMJ Nights pre-pandemic. Uh, but we all know how that has changed things. Um, in my day job, I'm in the business of commercial real estate, and I tend to get involved with lots of things in the community. So this show will be kind of a potpourri of a variety of different topics, but I'm always interested in your feedback. Uh, so please weigh in. Actually, uh, in the 940, you have already altered my show with your feedback. Um, so we'll get to that in a moment. The The talk and text line is 855-616-1620. Um, I will approach the show, uh, as you'll see, with a, a fair amount of skepticism and curiosity. Again, I want to hear from you. What are you thinking? What, what are you seeing out there? And some of the topics will lend themselves more than others. I'm a believer of policy over politics, uh, but I think that government should be limited and high-functioning. High-functioning, and we're going to talk about elections a little bit later in the show, and, and maybe maybe get your feedback on some of the candidates running in some of these local and regional races. I'm a lifelong Wisconsinite with roots in West Dallas and Jackson, Wisconsin. I was glad to hear the fine mayor of West Dallas, Dan Devine, on earlier with Steve Scafidi. I've spent many years living in downtown Milwaukee, and that's going to fuel a little bit of my thinking as we talk about the mayoral race uh, coming up a little bit later in the show. Currently live in the beautiful city of Mequon with my husband and two young sons. So we have a lot of ground to cover today. And again, I believe that the best part of the show is when I hear from you. So I encourage you to join the conversation. I promise to learn and respect you and Hope that you'll do the same. Um, again, that talks line, te- text line is open, so please feel free to weigh in at 855-616-1620. We're going to have a little bit of fun today, too, So, but we might save that for a little bit later in the show. Um, I joked with Steve Scafidi earlier that when I was kind of poking around for topics, you always kind of have to talk about topics that you care about that are interesting to you. And of course, the topics that are interesting to the audience. So, you know, of course, you do that quick Google search. What are people talking about? And the first 125 items were Chris Rock and Will Smith. And I'm I'm just going to say it right now, I did not watch it. I do not care about it. I think it's it's fascinating, though, that we are finding so many ways to pick apart this conversation, especially in a day and age when we have Vladimir Putin uh, wreaking havoc on the country of Ukraine, when we have bombs going off, when we have all of this uncertainty and all these really important topics uh, in the world. And and I want to point out, though, that that's not to diminish any of the important conversations that may or may not be happening around what happened at the Oscars. But I mean, 
I'm going to move on. And I hope that's okay with all of you. And unless there's breaking news tied to this topic, we're going to we're going to move along. So, but like many of you in the audience, I just returned from spring break. Steve alluded to that earlier. I spent uh, a, a great week in the beautiful, beautiful, wonderful state of Florida. Um, it was a wonderful time. And, you know, some of you out there are just taking off for these vacations. And I was talking to a friend last night who's in that same position. And, and she said, do you still have to wear, you have to, you have to wear a mask on an airplane, don't you? And it was kind of funny because... She hadn't flown in two years since the pandemic. And, you know, for those who aren't aware, we still have a federal mask mandate for the airports, airplanes, and for federal transportation. Um, and some of you, this isn't going to be a surprise. But, but this is a time when all of the other mandates, mask mandates, vaccine mandates, they are all being lifted across the country, even in federal buildings. New York City is not requiring vaccines. I think maybe nursing homes, you have to wear them, healthcare facilities, they may be required. Um, there's a recent survey that suggests, and, and actually this number was surprising to me, 44% of people are still wearing masks. And this was a pretty current survey. Um, so many of these individuals, I'm going to guess, do not live in Florida or Wisconsin. <laughs> Um, but it, it, it made me think about at the same time, we are approaching a date that's April 18th when this mandate is supposedly going to be lifted. And I'm thinking that's like three weeks away. Are we really, really not going to have to wear a mask in an, in an airplane? And I keep thinking like, I just don't think this date's going to come. And, and frankly, I was talking to Rachel earlier before the show and, I, I don't know if I can imagine not wearing a mask in an airplane. And especially as we're coming to this time when you have this new variant that's undoubtedly going to be, you know, creating some consternation and some worry throughout the country. It's now the predominant variant. I understand it's like the BA.2 variant, uh, very similar to the Omicron variant. Um, but I don't know if I can imagine this time when we're not wearing masks in an airplane. And for those of you who've been paying attention to this issue, um, the governor of the great state of Florida, uh, Mr. Ron DeSantis, has just announced that he is suing the Biden administration over mask mandates in airplanes. And, uh, you know, it, it's funny because it's, this is a lawsuit that that he launched with 20 other states, attorneys generals, mostly from conservative states. And, you know, I, I haven't really taken a pulse on this. You know, would they really be able to just wipe this, wipe this out? What do you think? Is this a good idea? Would you support this? 855-616-1620 on the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Should we have this choice? Come April 18th, are you going to throw off the mask when you get on an airplane? And it, it's gone. I, I, I have a very, very strong opinion on this, and, and I'll share it with you after the break. I'm Tracy Johnson, in for Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. We've been discussing the fact that many traveling for spring break over the last couple of weeks and the weeks ahead are going to be faced with the airport mask mandates. These have been in effect for two years. No surprise to those who have been traveling regularly, but there are many people. In fact, according to a survey 
Pew Research, I believe, uh, you know, it, like 80 percent of people haven't been traveling regularly. They've been participating in small gatherings. They've been driving. They they haven't been exposed. And I was talking to a friend last night who's going to the airport for the first time. And we're talking about this mandate. But more importantly, and the, the, the topic that really excites me and, and really interests me is this lawsuit that Governor Ron DeSantis has launched against President Biden. This is not the first lawsuit that Ron DeSantis has launched. Um, if you recall, he sued the Biden administration for the controversial vaccination requirement for federal employees. He has threatened the lawsuit against the Biden administration for withholding some of the medication for COVID-19, some of the the, the um, oral medication. Um, but this time he's going after him and saying, you know what, this rule in airports is arbitrary. We have already as a country decided that we are in the post-COVID era. You see federal buildings no longer requiring masks. You see vaccination mandates uh, lifted in one of the most strict cities, New York City. So let's just get on with it. And while the time of timing of this may not be maybe ideal, because this is set to expire April 18th, this mandate is set to expire April, April 18th. We're seeing a new variant on the horizon. And we've had it before where, you know, two days before a mandate is to be lifted or some lockdown is to be lifted, it just gets extended again and again and again. And, you know, I think Governor DeSantis speaks for a lot of people in this country. And if, if not a lot of people in this country, he speaks for people in Florida. And I was just in Florida. I mean, this governor is God there. People love their governor. And this governor speaks for his people. He says, mask mandates discourage people from traveling to our state. This directly affects the economy. This directly impacts tourism. This keeps people away. And we don't need this uncertainty. He makes the argument, and it's one that some of our fabulous texters have made. He said, you can sit in a stadium full of 40,000 people from all over the, all over the country. And you don't, you don't have to, we don't have any of these rules and restrictions. Why are we doing this in an airport? Why are we doing this in an airplane where studies have shown that the air in an airplane is actually safer and, you know, less dangerous than maybe in a, in a normal retail setting. So why do we keep imposing these mandates and these rules? And, you know, frankly, my, my observation is people are very compliant. I'm, I'm actually quite surprised, even in the very, very freedom-loving state of Florida, people are very compliant in these airports. So, you know, is this well-timed or is it poorly timed? I actually think that President Biden is, will try to extend this deadline or perhaps maybe the airports will try to extend this and require people to wear the masks on planes. I think there are a lot of people out there who are going to wear the masks regardless because you know I'm, I'm with you. There are some people texting who are saying, you know what, you got somebody sneezing on an airplane. You've got people coughing 
without covering their mouths. I'm just going to take personal responsibility. And frankly, I think that's the way it should be, is make your decision, make a decision for yourself, for what's good for yourself, and let's just get on with it. I mean, I'm sitting on this plane, and these these airline stewardesses and stewards are, they have to yell at people still, right? I mean, and they don't want to do this. Nobody wants to deal with this anymore. So I contend that we need to move along. And, and I believe that there will be an attempt to extend this, this mandate. And I actually think that Ron DeSantis's lawsuit could really have an impact here on giving people a choice. We'll discuss further if you want to weigh in, 855-616-1620 on the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I'm Tracy Johnson, in for Jeff Wagner. 1226 on WTMJ. I'm Tracy Johnson, in for Jeff Wagner. We're going to take a quick call here from Bill. Middle of nowhere, that's a place. All right, I like that. Bill, what's your experience? <laughs> Hi, I'm actually calling from Washera County, Wisconsin, but love I it. find that half the people who live in Wisconsin do not know where Washera County is. But I love it. Anyway, um, I wanted to pass on... Good. We just did a belated uh, holiday trip. Everybody was a little too paranoid about Omicron to get together. I've got kids who live out of state, and we all flew to Arizona, um, and I have to say that with all the major airports, including O'Hare, we flew from O'Hare actually to Tucson, um, the mass compliance was excellent. The, the mass compliance on the airplane was excellent. I did not see anybody resisting. In fact, I got scolded once. I just finished my drink, and what? the flight attendant came and reminded me to put my mask up, <laughs> which my wife, of course, gave me a stiff elbow to the ribs. But um, it, it, it's, it's, it was the only way, I think, that my family was going to agree right now we've got a lot of different ages i'm in my 70s and to to do this trip and to know that at least that part was covered and i think one thing that gets missed with the airlines in the airports in air travel is you have people if you you go to the grocery store i go into the post office locally our people are exposed to limited amounts of other people. But when you hit a major airport like O'Hare or you're flying in an airplane that who knows who you're sitting next to and where they came from two days ago or a week ago, I think it's just one extra layer of security and protection. And I'm willing to do it if, if it means traveling and seeing my family. I did not find it an inconvenience. I didn't see anybody moping about it. It seemed to work. Everybody, I got off the plane. I was healthy when I got home. Sure. You know, and I, I don't have a problem with it. And I think Ron DeSantis will do anything to, you know, get a gaze <laughs> but, his way. And but, he's kind of like the little kid in the toy box. I got you. Bill, would you agree? Anyway. Would you be okay traveling if other people had a choice? Would you travel if other uh, people yeah, around think, you were not wearing the mask? Well, you know, I, I probably would right now. Now, if another variant came along and things started to change, I either A, wouldn't travel, or okay. B, yeah, I would choose to wear a mask. But whether I'd fly, I'd have to toss the coin on that. that I might elect to drive and say, you know, I don't like this variant coming in. And if the master moved from the plane, I just don't want to be in that close quarters or in an airport, yeah. a large major airport with that many people who are on mask. I might change yeah. my mind. And that's Thank- just from my own perspective. Bill, thanks for the call. Um, you know, Bill brings up a good point. And the point that it really raises for me is at some point, I believe that the airlines are going to make, have to make a business choice. And this is something that we saw in the movie theaters. We saw 
and it was I think it was related to vaccines. Marcus was offering vaccine only movies and non-vaccine movies. It's going to be a business choice. I'm going to close this issue out when we come back. Welcome back, Wisconsin. It is 1234 on WTMJ on this beautiful Wednesday afternoon before the snow. We, we're not facing another snowmageddon. I, I swore off snow for the rest of the year, so I'm not sure how this is going to happen. So um, anyway, last uh, segment, we were discussing the fact that this is spring break season and everybody is getting on airplanes, sometimes for the first time in two years since the pandemic. Um, many of you are very seasoned travelers, and we're just kind of weighing in on the fact that April 18th is a very big day for our country because the federal mask mandate for airplanes and some of these other uh, public transportation areas is supposed to be lifted at this time when we're facing the, the new variant that is now the predominant variant spreading quickly in our country. And just so people don't get freaked out, what we've heard from all of the experts is that we will not be facing lockdowns. We don't expect, you know, huge overloads to the hospitals. This is a much less deadly variant. Um, nevertheless, it still does work with the vaccine. So we're still pushing the vaccines. Um, but the issue at question here is really the the masks and the the mask mandates, especially in the airports, which, again, are set to expire on the 18th of April. And we're getting a lot of great feedback um, from those who've traveled. Um, one caller from the 262 said they were on a 10 to 11 hour flight. Okay, and I'm sure many of you can relate to this. So you you get to the airport, right, two hours in advance, two hours in advance. And then you sit on an airplane for 10 hours. Let's assume that that's not a direct flight, right? You have a layover. And then you get on another flight. And then you get off the plane and you go through customs and then you get in an Uber and you've just been in a mask for like 20 hours. <laughs> so anyway, and, and I know this isn't new news. We've been living with this for, for a very long time. But I think one of the reasons many people are so compliant are not only because they believe in the masks, which is fine. That's your right. Um, but that they saw that end in sight and they said, you know what, it's only a couple more weeks. We're just going to just put our head down. We're just going to go with it. We, we may or may not believe in it, but we are just going to deal with it. Well, I don't believe that this new variant stands a chance in terms of our society overreacting. We are dealing in this brave new world where most of us have moved on and we want the opportunity to make a choice. We want to make our own choice and we want to live our life um, and we want to live outside of a pandemic. And, you know, we want to build a new world and build on the momentum uh, that we have as we come out of this pandemic. Because the thing that we see, and we saw this going into it, is that when you stop the momentum of a, a raging economy, it takes a lot to come back from that. And I know in 2020, we were talking about a dead stop. But any sort of that disruption, any sort of that uncertainty, whether it's in a supply chain or whether it's bringing people back to the office, we just we can't do that again. And I don't think that we're going to be faced uh, with that situation again. So I believe that we need to move on. I 
actually have a lot of faith in this lawsuit that's being presented by a number of attorneys generals uh, to to really to, to sue the Biden administration to say, you know what, give us a choice. Um, we are beyond this pandemic and we need to move on. So when we come back, uh, we are going to tackle a topic that I I love discussing, and that is about this new world of work, right? And and we talk a lot about employees and employers as we're bringing people back to the office. And almost every headline that I read suggests that the employees are really driving the bus here. And I want to discuss that. And I, and I had a great conversation with a number of really smart people in real estate and business. Uh, when we come back, we're going to dive into that. Uh, I am Tracy Johnson, in for Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. Welcome back, Wisconsin, twelve forty-two on WTMJ. I'm Tracy Johnson, in for Jeff Wagner. We teed this up before the break. Uh, this issue. Many of you are listening today, sitting in an office setting or sitting in a workplace setting that may look different than it did two years ago, right? So many people during COVID picked up and moved to working from home. Pre-pandemic, I, I don't know, I pulled some of these numbers and it's actually really fascinating. Pre-pandemic, 13% of the workforce, roughly, was working remote. This means that they don't have an office, right? They don't go to an office ever. This isn't hybrid. That's a very, that's a different thing. These are different terminologies. Hybrid would mean that you would spend some of the time in the office and some of the time uh, working remotely. Remote work is 100% not in the office. So 13% of the workforce was working remote. At the height of the pandemic, between 40 and 50% we're working remote. And I actually think that number seems fairly low because I, I kind of got the sense that everything was shut down. But when you think about all of the essential workers in the banking sector or the finance sector that were needed in an office setting to keep the world moving, you know, there, there are still a lot of people that were going to the office. I know in our industry, I work in real estate, the the real estate industry was considered an essential business. And that was because of its integral impact and, you know, its importance to keeping the rest of the economy moving. So, so 50% of the workers were working remote. And now post-pandemic, and I would say we're early post-pandemic right now, it's around that 21% nationally. Now, many of, much of this takes into account the larger companies, the larger companies, the multinational companies, the companies that have locations throughout the country are going to be the going to be the last ones to return to work. In fact, some of these companies are just announcing like recently that they're coming back to the office, which is kind of weird to me. I couldn't imagine not being in the office or not having the opportunity to be back in the office. But for so many working across these geographic lines and all of these different uh, mandates in different cities, especially places like New York or San Francisco or Chicago, where there were much stricter requirements, lockdowns, uh, spacing, social distancing, things like that, people just were less likely to come back and employers were less likely to ask their people 
to come back. But now, now these companies are saying, okay, guys, you know, it's time. We've put these leases on hold for a couple of years. We still have five years left. We're going to bring people back to work. And employees are saying, you know what? I don't want to be a part of it. I, I, I don't want to be a part of it. I'm not coming back to work. Uh, there was a, a recent report, and I, I referenced these reports because I think they call out some really interesting statistics by Robert Half. Many of you have heard of Robert Half. It's a staffing agency. It said 66% of managers say they want their teams on site full time. Okay? So they, they don't want remote. They don't want hybrid. About a third of them would support that hybrid model. But managers, managers want their people back. And I would argue that many of these managers, and I don't have the demographic information, but many of these managers are, you know, Generation Xers, they're boomers. They're people who are used to going to an office. People over the age of, let's say, 40, 42, 45. On the employee side, 50% of the employees said that if they had to go to the office, they would look for a new job. So half of the people surveyed, not the employers, the employees, said that if they were required to go to the office, they would say, you know what, peace out, I'm, I don't need this. And just a year ago, that number was 16%. So think about that jump. So, you know, in most of these people, most of the employees out there today, that, were, that are surveyed in this survey. Most of the people in the workforce today are in this millennial generation. Millennials were most likely to call it quits. And this is in a day and age when we have two jobs available, two open positions for every unemployed person. So, so we have these employers that are saying we need people and then we have people who are just saying, okay, I'm going to go here. I'm going to go here. I'm going to go where I can be remote. And I think there's a really, really big disconnect. Employers are holding on to that sense that culture and collaboration is very important. So they're saying that if you come into the office and we can be together, we are going to be exponentially better. One plus one equals three because of the culture and the collaboration that we're able to see when we come together. And the, many of the millennials are like, you know what? I got this. I'm good on Zoom. I want to be hybrid. Don't talk to me. I, I just, I want to be left alone. And I'm holding the cards. That's what they're saying is I am holding the cards. And they're saying if, you know, if you're not going to let me work from home, then I'm going to go somewhere else. But as an employer... You've spent so much time and so much money thinking about these office layouts, the views, the foosball table, the collaboration space. And during that pandemic, if you weren't in the office, none of it was used. And we saw a ton of disruption across the country with relation to office real estate. And, and I'm actually probably going to dig into that a little bit more on Friday when I'm on uh, for Jeff Wagner once again. It, but but did your business survive? And the answer is probably yes. So many of these employers are saying, okay, we spent all this money and all this time on configuring this space. And we didn't have anybody in the office, but we still survived. And, and many of them will give it a shot. But 
you know, when people move around, you've got new people coming on board, you've got new projects that are coming into play. The business is changing and the business is evolving. So while that may have worked for the two years of the pandemic, it's not going to work in this new world post-pandemic, in this new world of, uh, of office work post-pandemic. And I mentioned yesterday, I was with a group of really smart real estate executives. And one of them said that something that was very profound. And I, I really want you to listen to this. He said, it's only going to take a short recession. And we've heard that there's possibly a recession coming to knock all of those people out of the business. All of these people who said, you know what? I'm not coming to work. Good luck. Bye. He said, these are the first people that are going to go. And these employers might say, okay, okay, okay. I need you. I need you. You can work from home. But they are the least engaged and they may be not, they're maybe not the least productive, but they are going to be the first to go when the downsize occurs. And that really struck me. Because for so long, we've been saying that the employees are holding the card. But I believe that it is the employers. What say you? 855-616-1620 on the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Was this real estate exec right? Is it only going to take a short recession? And, and should the employers stand their ground for right now and say, you get back into the office or I'll see you later? We'll take your response, reaction when we come back. I'm Tracy filling in for Jeff on WTMJ. Don't let the door hit you on the way out. Hit your butt on the way out. That's what one texter said as we discuss uh, this idea that employees right now kind of hold the cards when it comes to going back to the office. And managers, employers are saying overwhelmingly, that they want their people in the office because there's collaboration that happens. Culture is so important, especially in this post-pandemic new world. Uh, Mike in Sheboygan, Sheboygan, you're on WTMJ. Hi, um, my nephew, your last comment. Um, my nephew is about 30, works at a very large insurance company in Sheboygan. I'm sure you know which one it is. Um, and he was just saying, to me the other day, it's like, yeah, all these people aren't coming back and they're just basically, you know, staying at home. And he's like, I, I go to work at least three out of the five days because if something happens and they start laying people off, I, I want to make sure that they knew I came to work. So I thought that was pretty interesting. So what's the industry, Mike? That industry, it, it's, it's, a, it's a, the big insurance company in Sheboygan on the highway. Got it. Um, Mike, thanks for the call. It, you know, I think, you know, in the insurance industry and in many of the service industries, you can obviously be remote. And we, we proved that you can be remote. But I think there are a lot of people who don't like that situation. I'm, I'm one of them. I cannot get anything done at my desk at home. It is just impossible. There are so many distractions. And I know many people say that there are distractions in the office. But you know, there is going to come a time when managers, I believe, and I believe that time will be very soon, the managers are going to have the say. And, you know, we're getting a ton of great feedback on the talk and text line about, you know, they have a similar situation. They think that employers are most concerned about productivity. And I think it depends on the industry. And and yeah, I know there's not a one 
size fits all. But right now, what we see happening is just generational, I believe. Generational people are saying, if, you know, I don't want to come to work. I want to work remote. I want the flexibility. And I think that they're missing the point that the world is different now. That for the last two years, the way that we measured productivity, I think is very different than the way that productivity may or may not be measured in the, in the future. And with so many of these jobs open, so many job openings from people moving around, you know, people are hopping. And they're saying, you know, I want to make a couple thousand dollars more. I want to work remote. I want to live in Denver, Colorado, or I want to live in a different city. And, and I got news. The, the grass isn't always greener, especially when you're starting in a remote environment. And some people can handle it. Listen, and, and I'm speaking from one point of view. This is why I love the input, the feedback on the talk and text line. But, but I believe the statement to be true. The fact that a recession is inevitable, right? Everything that goes up comes down. Everything that goes down must go up. That's, that's my own theory. But when that time comes, the people who are least engaged in the workplace, I believe are going to be the first to go. And I think it's going to be a, a big shock to a huge generation of people, especially if the way that the workforce is structured holds the way it is right now. When you talk about the generations, Generation X, the boomers, I mean, yes, they're aging out, but who's running these companies and who's really making these decisions? So, you know, I, I like the feedback. I like the pushback. But, but I think that the employees hold the cards for only so long. At some point, it, it's going to come down to a business decision. It's going to come down to culture. And it's going to come down to that collaboration. After the break, uh, we might continue on with this. We're getting a lot of good feedback. Um, my name is Tracy Johnson. I'm on WTMJ filling in for Jeff Wagner. It is 12.58. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. And now, in for Jeff Wagner, here's Tracy Johnson. Welcome back, Wisconsin. I'm Tracy Johnson in for Jeff Wagner. One hour down, two hours to go. Last segment, we were discussing the the idea that the employers, I believe, hold the cards when it comes to mandating that their employees come back to work. And that 65% of millennials, 50% of all people surveyed, suggested that if they were asked to come back into the office full time, that they would look for a new job. And this is a this is confirmed by the tens of texters who've uh, weighed in on this topic. Um, I really appreciate PJ. I think you make a really good point uh, that that intersects with my my comments on masking that people should have a choice. Okay. I am all about people having a choice. And when it comes to employees, wanting to leave a company because they're required to come back into the office, I think they should go. And if they, if, if that's the only card, if that's the card, then, then 
go find a remote workplace and and make it happen for yourself. And of course, these conversations are gonna gonna have going to happen with the employer. You know, where can we negotiate on this? And and it also kind of begs the question: What are you willing to give up? Okay, fine, you can work remote. Then do you? get less pay? I, I I don't know. I don't know where this bargaining chip falls in the whole scheme of bargaining chips. But whatever it is, and I get that good employees are hard to find. People have to keep in mind, employers have to keep in mind that if you bend for one employee, you are going to do that for everyone. And I get that, that employees are are your number one cost. They're, they're the reason that you exist, but they're your number one cost. They're the reason that you're able to, to make that profit, though. I get it. I get it. But every other employer out there is looking for a good employee. So you're competing. And this is a workforce that is very willing to move. And I have personal experience with this. They're very willing to move for $1,000 more. And that may be just a little less today because of inflation, but but people are willing to move for, for very little. And, and I will tell you, I have had people leave for not very much money. And, 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 it, and it was without asking if they could have more money, okay? Two months later, they've asked to come back because the grass isn't always greener. And, and I think what we could get into a routine of is is just this this cycle of of job jumpers and i don't think that's good for for anyone now yes having some outside experience and going to another company that could be valuable but there is something to be said for longevity i i fear that i am exposing the fact that i am a solid gen xer here thinking like this uh, because of the way that that I was really brought up in the workforce, that you stick around at a place for a couple of years. You get to know the culture. You, you grow with the company. You have a stake in the company. And I fear that if we, we lose some of that connection, that physical connection, that we're just not going to have that anymore. And it worries me for the future of this country since the majority of the workforce is going to fit into that millennial generation. And I get this is probably the most controversial thing that I am going to say all afternoon. But I think that the employers should say stay strong. You make your rule and you you stick with it. I do believe that the employees have a choice and I do believe that the employers have a choice. But I think in-person office and yes, I'm biased cuz I work in commercial real estate, I think it's it's the way to go. Make your decision and stick with it. When we come back, uh, many of you uh, are engaged in some of the local elections that are coming up. I want to talk through some of the changes, and I want to call it a couple of the local elections that I've been paying attention to over the last couple weeks. We have a couple more days of early voting in most of the communities, with Election Day, of course, being on April 5th. We'll dig into that. When we come back, it's 112. I'm Tracy Johnson on WTMJ. Welcome back. It's 115 on Wednesday, March 30th. A couple days until the big election day. Who's excited? Who's excited for election day? 
you know, the spring election is traditionally a very low turnout election. Uh, but nevertheless, there's been a ton of focus on new election rules. Of course, we don't have the ballot box. Uh, there's so much emphasis on early voting. I think during COVID uh, shutdowns and some of the, the mail-in voting and the different you know information, you know, many people really figured out how to campaign. Um, often the political parties uh, got involved and they helped navigate that. I believe they're supporting many of the candidates who are running, even though it's nonpartisan. Um, but there are many important elections on the table. And uh, you know, local elections are are where it's at. Steve Scafidi earlier this morning on his show had local mayors on the show from a number of different communities. Steve is a mayor himself. But you're talking about where the rubber meets the road, where the actual work gets done. It gets done at that local level. So paying attention, and that's going to be a theme of what I talk about today, is paying attention to these local elections because they are very important. They are very important. And Different communities have different rules and different timings for their early uh, early in-person absentee voting, uh, for, for different mail-in voting. Uh, so you'd have to check with your, your clerk uh, for those details. But Election Day, alas, is Tuesday, April 5th. So we're going to have a lot of new elected leaders, some re-elected leaders, uh, on April 6th. And I want to run through a few items on the ballot, and I want to hear from you what your paying attention to? What are you excited about? Or have you just tuned this out entirely? Because I'm sick of politics. Weigh in 855-616-1620 on the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. You text it in, call it in. What are you paying attention to? What are you excited about? You're seeing all the signs. You're getting the flyers in the mail. You're seeing all the Facebook posts. Uh, You're hearing a lot of ads on this station and others for some of the, the, the candidates that are running, there is a lot of money being spent for these positions and a lot of time and energy being spent. And I live in a community of Mequon where we have a number of county supervisors, we have school board members, we have the circuit, circuit court judge election. The signs are, are everywhere. And I've driven through Cedarburg. I don't know if many of you are listening from Cedarburg, but you have something like eight eight candidates for four school board seats. And and some of these little lots in the the middle of Cedarburg are just filled with signs. Heartland Village of Trustees, you have five candidates for three seats. And I mean, this is, this is, people are getting out the vote. They're getting this information out. And, And I think it speaks to people wanting to do their homework. And I said earlier, you know, this is a low turnout election. It just traditionally is a low turnout election, but could we be seeing a turning of the tide? You know, in some of these local elections, people are putting a ton of work into this. And I think we've seen that people really want to see change, especially at the school board level. You know, there's a a lot of candidates that are running for school board. This is an unappreciated, underappreciated position, I would argue. But these volunteers are putting themselves out there, and I have nothing but admiration for the candidates, any candidate, or any elected or volunteer elected leader. 
Um, sometimes these candidates are being threatened. We saw this in Cedarburg. Uh, Jennifer Salazar, uh, I believe is her name. She withdrew from the ticket because she just she couldn't handle it anymore. But it's a tough, tough job. And I commend anyone for stepping out there. You have to have a thick skin. You got to be willing to take the punches. This is like me sitting on the text line, look, listening to people. This is what Eric Bilstead always says. Don't look at the text line. Don't look at the text line. Except when you find want to find out you know, what people are thinking. But if they say something that you don't like, just move on. Um, but I also think in a day and age when so many people are hiding behind that keyboard, they're hiding behind that keyboard on Facebook or social media, and they're just launching attacks. Or they're sitting behind, you know, their, their keyboard or their phone on a text message campaign. And they're, they're launching attacks. They're saying things that they would never say to a person's face. It's just, it's stunning to me. And, and I'm, I'm using a dazzling detail firsthand. I am working with a candidate who is, you know, kind of working through this. And I have a great deal of admiration and respect for the poise and confidence that it takes. But I'm just, I'm just shocked. And I think that, that, that talking about this is a good thing. But, you know, it scares people away from running for these offices that we need good people to be participating in. Not political people, not political parties, but good people who have a stake in the community and who really want to make a difference and dedicate their time. It's another thing that I've noticed uh, kind of being involved in some of these campaigns is just the political intervention and the, the people from outside the community who are engaging. And of course, social media makes that all too easy to get engaged and to create these larger groups that help with a larger movement. But I, I think it tears the community apart. And I know that many communities are facing some really, really tough decisions. You know, what's on your mind as we come to the spring election, 855-616-1620 on the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line, whatever community it is. Am I, am I off base here? Maybe, maybe I'm right on base. Maybe people don't care about this election. It's, that's not what I see. I feel like, like there's a different kind of energy out there. And I, I hope it's fueled in moving forward and that we're helping to promote something and not to be against something. That's always the way that I like to think about these things. And a lot of ways that I advise candidates or I talk to candidates in a campaign is focusing on the positive, but seeing the challenges as opportunities. What's on your mind? 855-616-1620 on the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Your reaction, your feedback, lots of texts on this 122 on WTMJ. It's election day. It's just a few days away. April 5th. Who's excited? Lots of local uh, elections on the ballot for school board, supervisor. We have a circuit court judge race, um, mayor, mayoral elections uh, coming up. And, you know, if I'm judging by the signs and we always hear that signs don't vote. Right. 
Um, but they do, I think, suggest that there has been a contact, right? That there has been a candidate who has made a contact with someone to help get out the vote and get out that information. So in addition to many of these, I think they're hotly contested. Because when you got eight candidates running for four seats, that's a there's that's a lot. That's a lot going into an election. And of course, that's uh, referencing what's happening in Cedarburg. But on many of the ballots, the the issues that turn people out are the referendums. And on April 5th, there are a number of referendums that are on the ballot, including a Nicolay, Nicolay district. They've got a seventy five million dollar referendum on the budget. It's a lot of money. Bayside, $58 million referendum on the budget. West Dallas, and this one I think is really interesting, especially having roots there. Uh, Nathan Hale, high school that many people know from, you know, just being around growing up in the area. And West Dallas Central High Schools are proposing to merge or not really merge, but but basically dissolve and become one school. This is a $150 million referendum in this small community. And this is a, a binding referendum that's been passed by the school board, and it needs to go to the voters. This is a lot of money. And I know that people say that a lot of these referendums, you know, add 10 bucks here for every $100,000 of value. But these are big dollar amounts. And in many of these communities, I would argue Nicolet, maybe Bayside, the people who are benefiting, you know, the, 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 the taxpayers aren't all benefiting from this resource from a standpoint of having students in the school. And so these are sticky situations, especially in an environment where we fight for low property taxes, and especially in many of these communities where taxpayers don't want to pay more. So then these these issues of, of schools and school additions and safety measures, and sometimes their operational referendums, they go before the voters. And so these are many of the issues that will draw out the voters. And, you know, some of these referendums, I think, are are needed. I think many of them are promoted through the contractors and through, you know, special interests who want to see these things happen. But I wouldn't be surprised if you see a higher turnout as a result of some of these uh, referendums uh, being on the ballot. Um, I have to just add a quick note here in West Dallas, um, West Dallas Central High School. I got to do a shout out. My grandfather worked there for a long time. He was a custodian there um, for a very long time. And I know for people who have attended high schools that are no longer around, those are those are emotional decisions that a community makes. Um, but of course, all of these things being proposed to better the community, to create greater technology for the students, uh, to create a better and safer environment for the students. I understand it. I understand it. But referendums are tough. And there's so many rules around referendums that have changed over the years. Um, it will be interesting to see how people turn out. And I'm going to make a prediction here. I think it was something very high percentage of the referendums that have been proposed in the last several years have passed 
uh, just because there's just been such artful work done on, you know, selling the proposition. I think many people realize that many of the proposals are warranted, especially when it comes to safety and technology upgrades. So that's on the ballot April 5th. When we come back, there's another big election on the ballot, and that is the mayoral election for the city of Milwaukee. Welcome back. It's 134 and WTMJ. I'm Tracy Johnson filling in for Jeff Wagner, who is on a much-deserved, I think, vacation, but it doesn't matter. I'm here filling in uh, until 3 o'clock this afternoon. I want to set this up um, with a headline that we're not all going to like. We're not all going to care for this headline, but it was in the Biz Times uh, late last week when many of us were out on spring break, right? But it talked about the Milwaukee County's population decline. And the headline from Biz Times reads that the Milwaukee County population has dropped by 10,000 in 2021. So 10,000 people left the city in 2021. And here's not that they left the city, but that was the decline in population. So you've got births, you've got deaths, you've got immigration, you've got all these different things and factors that play into that. So that's a decrease of 1.1%, a decrease of 1.1%. Now that doesn't probably sound like a lot, but when you look at where there was growth, you see that people are still choosing to be in Wisconsin, but they're they're not choosing Milwaukee. They're choosing some of these other cities or they're leaving the city, which is an, a national trend is they're leaving the city, leaving the county and moving to to other places, areas outside of Milwaukee. They saw a 0.5 percent increase. Dane County, which is on fire, saw an increase and Waukesha County led the pack. But as I mentioned earlier, we lost people due to to COVID, which was a actually a big part of it. There was a lot of there were a lot of COVID deaths, uh, lack of immigration, and and these slower birth rates. And these are all you know natural causes. But I believe that the biggest reason that we lost population has, has very little to do with those natural causes, but rather the man-made ones, and you know the policy the taxes, the government intervention, and frankly, the quality of life. And most important on that list, most important on that list for quality of life is that crime. Now, Milwaukee County is not the same as the city of Milwaukee, which is where you know we have a very important election coming up. It's no secret that there is a, a lot of crime happening in our city with five murders just this week. And this keeps people away. It deters people from coming here. And as we've seen, it's forcing people to leave. Just last week, a poll by the Greater Milwaukee Association of Realtors found that it is the top issue keeping our city down. And we've heard time and time again, it is the top issue in this mayoral election. I argue, though, that crime and seeing these numbers, this presents the greatest opportunity for us to change. We can measure, we can understand the root causes, and we have a collective willingness to coalesce around the solution. So so what are we missing here, right? We all talk about it, we all see it, 
Some of us have experienced it firsthand, unfortunately. So what are we missing? We're missing a leader. We're missing someone to lead on this issue. And that brings me to this mayoral election that we have coming up and the opportunity that voters in this city have to help this region and this state get out from under this cloud that is crime and quality of life and stop the bleeding, literally and figuratively, of people leaving this city. And I am a Milwaukee cheerleader. I worked downtown. I lived downtown for a very, very long time. And we just sold our property. And, and, and when we did that, I, I said, you know, I, I didn't leave the city. The city left me. But I'm not giving up on the opportunity because I am committed to, to ensuring that it succeeds. But we need to prioritize not just on the issues, but how we tackle them. And I am not suggesting that I have the answers, but what we're doing right now is just not working. And there's nobody that says this is working. When you have a 20% approval rating of, of, of the quality of life in the city. So let's not keep doing that. It's not just about cracking down on the car thefts, which I think is a huge problem. The root cause is lack of leadership and the fear of those replications. And we blame the failing schools and we blame the state in many of these cases. And both of these things, I don't see active participation to find a solution. We need to look to new ways because passing the blame is not going to work. And, you know, I've been paying a lot of attention to this upcoming mayor election. And again, I have hope that when we have a new mayor in office, that we will hopefully be able to coalesce around a solution. You know, we, we saw that, that the mayor's crime plan what hasn't been able, or the acting mayor's crime plan hasn't been able to be put into action. I get it. I get it. But we don't have time. Because for every crime that occurs, there is another one right behind it. And if we don't stop this momentum, the momentum begets momentum. Now, I was encouraged at a, a panel. You know, I think, you know, when you hear the candidates toe to toe, you see some discrete differences in terms of how people talk about education, how they look to the different options and opportunities that we have before us and what we should be considering. You know, we have can- candidates that acknowledge, we have to acknowledge that what we have is broken and we cannot continue to blame the state for not being open to ideas and listening to ideas. Most of the funding for our schools in Milwaukee public schools are through that shared revenue, are through the state. And, and leaders like Alberta Darling, I know she had proposed breaking apart the school system into a number of small districts. Why don't we look at that as a solution? And I would challenge both candidates to really think about those creative solutions, whether it's school choice, which I don't understand why it's so controversial. Give people a choice, right? Or looking at some of these options to find a better way to get at some of these root causes. 
So we need to be willing to propose a solution, be open to acting on that solution, and be willing to take responsibility for those actions. Because right now, we, we don't have that. But it starts with the voters. And, and I can't vote. I just talk. And I write the checks when I'm asked. <laughs> and I care deeply about Milwaukee because I do believe that it is the economic engine. But the crime spills out into these other communities. And, you know, many of you listening have been victims of that crime in your community as a result of what happens in the city. So we all have a vested interest in what happens here. And we're going to need need to make tough decisions as a community. And we're going to have to coalesce behind whoever that new mayor is. This mayoral election matters to our region and it matters to our entire state. Because instead of being positioned as the anchor, I believe, and many people in economic development have said this, that Milwaukee is a sale. It should be a sale for our state. It is the economic engine, and we need to support its success. We'll dig into this a little more when we come back. But if you have any suggestions, want to weigh in, 855-616-1620 on the Econet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. My name is Tracy Johnson, in for Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. Welcome back. It's 147 on WTMJ discussing the the April election and more importantly, I think this is really important, the mayoral election in the city of Milwaukee. And I understand that many people listening probably can't vote in that election and they say, well, it doesn't doesn't pertain to me. But just like we were talking about in these school board elections, even if you don't have kids in the school, these elections matter to you. So it's important that even if you can't vote in this mayoral election, that you talk to your friends and neighbors who may be involved. Can you write a check? Can you support a candidate? Do your homework. That's one thing that I am very impressed with, with the voters who take the time to to go out and vote, is that they are doing their homework. They're doing the questions. They're not just checking the box. And I would never advocate that because as we all know, elections have consequences. And sometimes the consequences are even greater at that local level. So I'm getting a lot of feedback on the text line about, you know, people who have left the city. And we started out talking about this topic. 10,000 fewer people living in Milwaukee County. Now, there are lots of great communities and cities that are in Milwaukee County, but the city of Milwaukee specifically. So, you know, the, the Milwaukee mayor election has that regional impact, right? And the top issue is crime. Crime, crime, crime. Fix the crime. And I, I get it. It's a complicated issue. And trust me, I get it. I get it. And I'm not saying that I can fix it. I also know for a fact that throwing more money at some of these solutions is not the answer. And I work with and I talk to the law enforcement in downtown Milwaukee who are working hard and they're working very smart to try to locate these individuals who are causing the crime. And as rampant as it may sound, you know, there are a small group of individuals who are just wreaking this havoc. And all of these crimes are crimes of opportunity. 
crimes of opportunity because you have fewer people around. In these downtowns, it's, you know, sometimes a ghost town in some of these streets on some of these blocks. And it creates that opportunity for that car theft. It creates that opportunity for their carjacking. In some of these several story high parking garages, you've got one or two cars parked there when people aren't in the office. This is once again a reason that I advocate for people to be back downtown, be back at the office. It creates a safer community and a safer environment. And in some of these cities, the elected leaders are the ones that are advocating the loudest to get the people back to work, get people back downtown, get people back in the office. Because if they lose that connection to those companies and those companies decide, you know what, we're just going to close shop and they can't pay the rent, the building owner can't fill that space, what happens to that tax base? Right? I mean, so, so everyone has a stake and getting more people and more activity and how that directly relates to crime. Now, getting back to that mayoral race, uh, there was an article that was discussed at length on many of the shows yesterday, and I want to make a comment on it because it really struck me. And it was about Chevy Johnson and the fact that the black aldermen were not endorsing. And I, I want to push back on that headline a little bit because I know that that acting mayor Cavalier Johnson is one of 15 alders on the common council. I work with him. I find him to be very easy to work with and he cares deeply about this city and he narrowly won that seat as chair, which ultimately has positioned him in this favorable position that he now holds as the incumbent acting mayor of the city of Milwaukee. So if you look at that common council, more than half are black African-American. But I'm less concerned with the race and more concerned with policy here. And when you dig deeper and you dig beneath that headline about where and why that support may or may not have been granted, you know, it's about some of those internal comments and what do those mean and how are those going to be worked through you know working with a council is one thing but working with a council as a mayor is another and I agree that you have to have those good relationships and you have to be on the same page with your your fellow alders but there is something to be said for good friction and you know, I, I think that the reason many of these alders, black or, or white, many of them have not endorsed either candidate, Ashanti Ham- Hamilton being an outlier on that. I think it's because they know that they're going to have to work with whoever wins and that they really want to be able to do that with a clear conscience. Well, I think what's interesting in this is they are very thoughtful in evaluating their endorsement because I think an endorsement from any of the aldermen would have a lot of weight. And a lot a lot of times endorsements don't have weight, but I think that alders working in the city with the mayor would have a ton of weight. So, you know, ultimately this is up to the voters. I think the voters have a lot to think about. I wish 
that more people in Milwaukee would pay attention and that they would get out to vote and that they would talk to their friends and neighbors because there is a lot at stake here. This is not just about buildings in downtown Milwaukee. This is about crime and education and schools and the biggest city in our state. And and it's where is this going to go for the next 20 or 30 years? Whoever is elected in this position is likely going to be in that seat for a very, very long time. And they're going to set the course of policy in this community for decades to come. We have a history of electing mayors and and putting putting them in that spot for a very, very long time. If you have any comments on this, 855-616-1620 on the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Um, we have actually one caller. James, if you'll stick with us till after the break, we'll take your call. I'm Tracy Johnson on WTMJ. The Milwaukee mayoral election matters to all of us. Lots of really smart comments on the talk and text line we'll get to in a moment. But first, we have James from the South Side. You're on WTMJ. How are you doing today? Great. Well, I think that um, I think our city just a few weeks back had a light shine down at Good with the NCA tournament. Yeah. But then, uh, but then here, here's a couple of points, Tracy. I'm going to make, and you're going to probably disagree or whatever. Is that uh, we have the chance for the uh, we have the chance for the Republican Party. We we didn't get the uh, Democrat one um, because of COVID and everything else, but. We have a chance that the Republican Party uh, can, um, to bring in $100 million or $200 million and everything else to our city and stuff like that. People in other conventions come on maybe in the future. But then we got these people that are bad-mouthing our city saying we, we don't need the Republican yeah. Party to come on in. We don't, we don't need that. And that was then, a um, ba- that was also, a not the best light to shine, but hopefully we've yeah. remedied that. And you know you get that in some cities, but yeah, it was an unfortunate. And he's what he's referring to is and then, the election and then, administrator. And then we have also, the, then we also have uh, uh, people that are with businesses. They want to come to Milwaukee. They want to, be, but then uh, they say, well, it's it's not our, it's not the business type or business climate here. Or that even though it's good good paying jobs. And, you know, other companies say, looking at maybe when they see certain companies start coming on, maybe into want to come into the city of Milwaukee, and they, oh, no, 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 we don't want these jobs here, or we don't want those jobs there. And then they're coming on the outside of, uh, you know, into Waukesha or other places, and everybody else is saying, well, how come they got their jobs, or how come they got this or that, you know? We're, we we kind of are our, our own enemy uh, with the... Uh, what we say and how we say it and how we try doing things. I mean, look, like like you were just saying, uh, like Jeff Wagner says, look at crime and st- everything else. Yeah. Statistics. It's kind of it's kind of a shame that we our city is falling apart and yeah. it's spiraling, like you just said. But the mayor, whoever's going to be the mayor for the next could be a long five, time, 10, twenty years. They have an gonna, opportunity. James, thanks for the call. I got to let you go. Uh, you know, I think James brings up a, a, a couple of good points that, you know, but at the end of the day, my takeaway is that we have an opportunity and we need to see these challenges as opportunities. And trust me, I am, I see them. I see the challenges. I see the challenges. I don't have all the answers, but we have to get this election right, Milwaukee. If you're a voter in Milwaukee, pay attention, care about the issues, reach out to the candidates. This election matters to 
all of us, our entire state and our entire region. I am Tracy Johnson on WTMJ. The news is after the break. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. And now, in for Jeff Wagner, here's Tracy Johnson. Welcome back, Wisconsin. It is 2.08. We got an hour left in the show. Man, this time flies when I'm filling in uh, for Jeff Wagner. Um, lots of great feedback. I really appreciate the texts on the, the talk and text line throughout the show. You guys make the show uh, better, um, even to when people call in, 855-616-1620 on the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. So I know we've been talking a lot about the potential of hosting the Republican National Convention in 2024. And we've been following this story since late last year when the, the, the bids were placed or when the RFP was uh, sent out. And as we learned about two weeks ago, Milwaukee is one of two finalists. We made it past the top three. Salt Lake City was cast to the curb. So it's Milwaukee versus Nashville, Tennessee. And I, I prefer Milwaukee for this convention, of course, although Nashville is a wonderful city. Um, this convention is expected to have something around $200 million of economic impact, 45,000 visitors from across the country, tons of great media exposure, which Milwaukee has shown and Wisconsin has shown that it's able to handle and that it, it is able to, you know, really, I think, put on, you know, it's Sunday's best for the occasion and really show well um, for the national stage. Uh, there was a, a recent article, and it was actually a series of two articles in the Milwaukee Business Journal and the Nashville Business Journal. And I just found it really entertaining because I don't really have any friends that I talk to regularly in the city of Nashville. But this these two kind of, I would say, opposing op-eds that I'm referring to. One is written by the Business Journal's editor-in-chief, Mark Cass, for the Milwaukee Business Journal. And the other one is written by editor-in-chief for the Nashville Business Journal. His name is Eric Snyder. And it's basically a pitch, you know, and it's, it's basically why my city is going to get the convention. And I think it's it's actually really interesting to look at kind of the dueling pianos here, kind of go back and forth and say, why is my city better? Why is my city going to get this convention? And, you know, as Mark Cass dutifully points out, um, you know, we just got ready for the DNC, the Democrat National Convention, which was bigger in stature and the requirements. And we they selected Milwaukee for the DNC. Now, we all know how that played out, but that was a natural circumstance that we couldn't control. But we checked all the boxes. We are prepared for the security needs. We are prepared and ready for all of the hotel rooms that would be needed. Um, we've already raised $20 million to the anticipated $65 million that the host committee would need to put forth in order to 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 get this party started, so to speak, um, you've got bipartisan support for this convention, which is rare 
across the country. Mark Cass makes the point that you've got Democrat business leaders and Democratic political leaders who are throwing their support behind this convention because of the economic impact and the heaviness that this would would grant to our city. And, and not just for that convention, but in the aftermath of that convention. There is no doubt that we would have done an amazing job for the DNC. But I think that was the dry run for for this RNC. And I think that the, that's what the Republican National Committee really paid attention to when they were, were looking at the two cities. But But here's what I thought was funny and interesting is reading through the Nashville pitch, why they thought they were going to get the city. And I found it interesting that they not only said why they would get it, but they said why Milwaukee wouldn't get it. I didn't see anything in Mark Hass's comments about why Nashville wasn't going to get it, just why Milwaukee would get it. I think many of you understand where I'm going with this. Um, one of the points that was mentioned by the Nashville Business Journal, of course, is just what an attraction that Nashville is. It's no secret that people are flocking to Nashville. It not only has a friendly tax environment, it has good weather, Fortune 500 companies are locating there. People want to be in Nashville. And let's be honest, it's a it's a very fun city. Milwaukee's a very fun city too. But but these are the points that this editor in chief for the Nashville Business Journal makes. Um, he also suggests that you would have a lot of access to celebrities. And I thought this was really funny. He said, you know, think about all the country music stars that you would have access to in Nashville, Tennessee, right? And they'd all show up to this. You wouldn't have a Scott Baio incident like you did in 2016 at the GOP convention because of the lack of celebrities. And then he made a mention that he looked up celebrities in Milwaukee and just couldn't find any. And I was like, oh, I don't know if that's a selling point. I'm pretty sure celebrities would come here if that if that really mattered. So um, anyway, but I thought that was interesting. Um, they also draw point to the fact that they've got this beautiful convention center. I would match that point because by 2024, Milwaukee will have a brand new, beautiful state-of-the-art convention center, not to mention the Pfizer Forum. Um, you know, but, but you know, I, I don't think that Nashville closed the case. I really think that Milwaukee is going to get this convention. I just, I feel like we are ready for this. And we've put everything out there as a city. We've done our best on the proposal, rolled out the red carpet in so many ways. This is going to be the biggest game in town. They are going to get our full attention when they are here. And what a great benefit to our city. And I know that we will know before August, right? That's when the uh, the election is, and they normally will announce that host city before um, that candidate is announced. So I think it's a matter of months before we find out. But nevertheless, that was a fun article, and you can find a link to that in the Milwaukee Business Journal. It was in Friday's edition and updated on Saturday, but you can also read Eric Schneider. Business Journal Editor-in-Chief from Nashville as he makes some of his points. Uh, when we come back, the housing market. Uh, some of you guys are in the market for a house. And, you know, this is, this is a, 
a tough market, right? It's no secret. Um, and we have some some new inventory and pricing numbers that I I just I can't believe I haven't bought a house in several years. Um, but some of these staggering numbers that are coming out of uh, the Wisconsin Realtors Association, Greater Milwaukee Association of Realtors. When we come back, we will dig into that. I'm Tracy Johnson in for Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. Welcome back to WTMJ on this lovely Wednesday afternoon. Tracy in for Jeff Wagner. Uh, we take this up. Many of you are in the market, being shut down, some as we speak, looking for homes. Um, it is a, a an historically tight housing market. Um, but, but I believe, and I'm a huge proponent of home ownership. I believe it's the most mature decision you can make. You build equity, build credit, build a family, build roots. Um, there's so many positives. And I, and I know there are many people listening out there who say, oh my God, there's so much work to be done on a house. It's it's more work than some people think. But nevertheless, you know, it's something that, you know, has so many positives um, in our community. But but it's getting harder and harder to buy a home, right? And there's no inventory and the prices are skyrocketing and you can't even build houses because you can't get the supplies. And I pulled this report out of curiosity because I was getting some conflicting numbers here um, about the, the home prices and affordability, especially as we have these conversations about increasing interest rates, not just one rate increase, but two and three and possibly even four or five. And maybe that's too many, but <laughs> there's increasing interest rates on the horizon. But looking back in 2011, the median price for a home in Wisconsin was $133,000. And there are probably some of you listening who are, okay, yeah, that sounds right. That was that's, that sounds right. Well, in 2021, that median home price was $240,000. That's a huge jump in just 10 years. Now, I think there are lots of, of, of factors that contribute to that. Um, but at the end of the day, many, many first-time and even second-time home buyers are being squeezed out of this market and unable to, you know, find a, a place to place their their wealth or their savings or invest investment. There's just no inventory, and the prices are so high that I think many millennials or Gen Z, even some Xers, they haven't saved enough to be able to ba- make basically a a twenty percent cash offer on a house in order to compete with all the buyers that are out there. And I think that's an interesting convergence that we have with the conversation around apartments. Many of you driving around in these communities will probably see these multifamily units going up here, there, and everywhere, whether it's in the city, uh, whether it's in the suburbs. You're seeing a lot of, of, of rental units going up. And it's not because... People like to build those. It's because there's demand. The average rent for one of those apartments, and this is this is a city apartment. These are suburban apartments. The average rent across the country is something around seventeen 
$100. And there are probably many who are renting $3,500 house or apartments, um, you know, others who are less than that. But that's a lot of money. I remember when I was growing up, when I was renting, I was paying something like 400 bucks. I mean, that's a, that's a huge, huge increase. But when you're paying $1,700 a month for rent, plus utilities in many of these cases, and plus parking in a lot of these cases, I'm just not sure how young people are able to save to put that down payment on a home. People can't afford to save. And and now you've got these these rising interest rates and you've got all this stress. We're entering a very busy housing season, even though we're hearing from the Greater Milwaukee Association of Realtors that we will likely see some relief in terms of inventory. But what is that going to do to the pricing? I think there's there's a lot of people that are either waiting on the sidelines because they just don't want to deal with the competition or they're going to wait this out. But I think there's going to continue to be that pent-up demand for, for housing. And especially as we look at this new generation, this next generation uh, that is, is getting into the, the home ownership. I also think another factor in this is the population shift, right? From Chicago, New York, some of these other bigger, more intrusive cities these gateway cities that are losing population at an even greater rate than maybe Wisconsin or Milwaukee. And they're coming to the Midwest where it's much more affordable. And think about it. I I live in a subdivision right now of 33 homes. We've had seven new owners in just the last three years. That's huge turnover. And, And most of the families, as I think back on it, are not from here. They're not from up the road. They're from another community. They're from another state where the housing cost was much higher. So they're getting a lot more house for their money, driving up the prices. So there's a lot going on in the real estate market right now. Um, and I think we're, we're setting a generation of renters. And unfortunately, until we have some relief in the market, we are not going to see any changes. So when we come back, um, we're going to talk about that next generation of home buyers, that next generation of leaders in our city. Um, I had the opportunity to attend an event, the 40 Under 40 event, which I know WTMJ is a partner of, um, and learned some really interesting things from this next generation. I want to share with you more when we come back on WTMJ. Welcome back on WTMJ. I'm Tracy Johnson in for Jeff Wagner. Uh, Talking through this omnipresent issue of the fact that people looking for houses are really having a tough time. And many people are just waiting this out, sitting on the sidelines all the while, you know, paying more money for rent. And I just, I have a huge problem with the fact that rent is so expensive, probably because I have um, been in a home for for a while. Um, and, and I'm just glad I'm not competing out there in that tough tough uh, marketplace. But I wanted to just touch on a really interesting perspective from a number of young people in this community. I know I spent a lot of time talking about the crime and the issues and the education. And, and 
the problems that we have in our community and the things that may be driving people away. But there are 40 young leaders that are being recognized by the Business Journal and the 40 Under 40, um, who I think really help shape and represent the future for our community. They are looking at the opportunities and they're looking at the challenges that we have before us. And I hope and I think and I feel like they're realistic about what we need to do uh, to, to really tackle some of the, those tough issues. I admire and respect their optimism, you know, as they look ahead to working together and staying committed to this community and this state, the economic opportunity, and um, really keeping people here. Because, you know, that's half the battle is not just attracting the people to come here, but to make sure that people stay here, whether they graduated from MSOE or UWM or Marquette University, to ensure that they have those opportunities, that they feel safe and feel comfortable staying within this community to continue to contribute. When we come back, speaking of colleges, um, we are approaching an extension deadline for the federal student loan payments. What is going to happen now? Welcome back. It's 2.34 on WTMJ. We are approaching a month away, a deadline that is a month away for the student loan debt pause that has been in effect since March 2020 when COVID began. Now, some of you are saying, what in the heck is she talking about? And some of you are like, I know, because I have been pushing off my federal student loan payments for the last two years. This pause, this pause has been extended five times and is set to, is set to expire in May of 2022. And we're, we're starting to hear people say, um, what's the plan here? Because if I need to start paying back my student loan debt, in 30 days here, I need to I need to make a plan for that. And, you know, I think that people should have been planning for this all along. I think people should have been paying if they were able to pay. But that's just the way that I approach debt in my world. Um, digging into this a little bit further, um, President Biden has canceled more student loan debt than any other president. And that that's something that for for I think a number of reasons has not really been touted because it's such a, a piecemeal approach that, you know, they really campaigned on being able to wipe away all of the student loan debt. And so they, they have they have given relief and forgiveness for borrowers who work in the public sector, those who were defrauded by for-profit colleges, and those who are permanently disabled. That was something around 700,000 borrowers, totaling $17 billion in federal, federal student loan payments that were just wiped off the books. But there are around 43 million federal loan, federal student loan borrowers who he promised he was going to offer relief for something like a $10,000 per borrower. Now, I was paying attention to this issue on the periphery. Uh, For one reason, I, I don't 
currently have student loan debt. Um, I was able to pay that off in what the 20 year time horizon that they allowed you. But, you know, the, the second reason that it was kind of on the periphery for me is that I just I think it is ridiculous to talk about wiping away debt that an individual has earned for a decision that they have made to attend a college or university. And, you know, I think we've seen through COVID-19 and the recovery and all of the different programs that the federal government has put in place that kept money in people's pockets to pay for things like rent or bills or, I don't know, student loans, which is an incurred expense. I think that people should have been able to pay for that. They should have been planning for that. Now, I understand that there could be, you know, circumstances that arise. But at the end of the day, I I think what's happening here is that you're setting people up for this this false idea that you're going to, to wipe away their student loan debt. And President Trump is the one who put this in place, first and foremost, in, in March of 2020. But then it was extended and extended again and extended again. But I, I think that President Biden currently has an obligation to let borrowers know sooner rather than later what their obligation is going to be. And don't don't fly this under the radar because this is kind of a big deal. You know, if, if these these lenders have to allocate their resources to chasing down people who may or may not have thought that they were going to have to pay their student loan debt back, you know, that's a huge, huge strain on those resources. And this isn't, in my mind, this isn't about what's fair. I mean, here's the deal. I I paid my loans off. I was able to pay my loans off. Now, did I scrimp and save at certain points? Did I make sacrifices at certain points? Yes. Yes, that's what people, responsible people who borrow money do, is they say, can I afford to do this and will I be able to to pay for this in the future? And so I think that we have given fair opportunity for people to get ready for this deadline for May 1st deadline, I say if you are one of those borrowers out there who's waiting for somebody to tell you, well, here's the deal. Here's the deadline. May 1st, 2022, those loan payments will uh, kick in. I mean, that's what we're we're being told. And if, if President Biden is going to extend that once again, you know, his authority on that has been questioned in the past. The authority to possibly cancel some of these loans has been questioned in the past and challenged in the past. Um, But he has an obligation to let these people know, because I think it's not only causing uncertainty for the current borrowers, but it's causing confusion and uncertainty for for individuals who are contemplating a college education. Do I want to get into this type of situation where I may or may not know if I have to pay my student loans back? And what does that mean? What kind of pressure is this going to have to have on the lending environment? What kind of pressure is this going to cause on the educational institutions in terms of being to collect, being able to collect these dollars? And what impact is that possibly going to have on their programs? I don't know. This, this issue is, this is, a, this is one for me. And I think this is going to be a big issue on the campaign trail. What do you think? Is this going to be an issue for President Biden and for 
I would say the Democrats come election time on the campaign trail, 855-616-1620 on the AccuNet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Your reaction and more when we come back. Welcome back to WTMJ. We're heading into the end of the show here before we hit the Brewers game that will be broadcast on this station. The Brewers play the Padres today at three o'clock. We were talking about this looming deadline that I don't I haven't really heard a lot about, but it, it affects tens of millions of federal student loan borrowers. Uh, they have been extending the deadline for payment, repayment, since March of 2020. And this this deadline has been extended five times since then. So for the last two years. And due date is, is May 1st. Now, I mean, it's not like everything that has been deferred is due, right? But this is just when the continuation of these student payments would would begin again right because you know the pandemic is behind us at least that's the way that we're (laughs) we're approaching this that the pandemic is behind us that all of the relief and all of the dollars that the federal government was going to spend to create that continuity and keep people afloat um is out there so we're hearing um that then now it's time for those borrowers to 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 start paying their their debt back. And so, you know, I think it's really interesting when you combine this issue with the fact that colleges across the board are facing a decreasing a decrease in enrollment. And, you know, there are lots of figure factors for that, including the shifting demographic trends. You know, people are having fewer children. Um, There's a strong job market and many of these jobs are no longer requiring a college degree. Not only are they not requiring a college degree, but there's a lot of skepticism. You know, as we look ahead, I have an eight-year-old and an 11-year-old. And when I think about the next, you know, 20 years, what is that really going to look like in terms of the need for a college education? Is that really going to be necessary? And all of this uncertainty that's playing into the fact that that enrollment is down something like 5% across the board and a number of the the universities are looking at different ways that they can attract more students whether it's a hybrid model whether it's an online model whether it's investing in their amenities whether it's offering additional scholarships uh, but the fact is that these these college this college debt for for many families if they don't need to take this on they're they're probably going to think long and hard about taking on that additional debt. And I, I think that the uncertainty around that that repayment of that student loan debt is just, you know, one other factor that that comes to mind. And we're getting a lot of people really weighing in on this and the fact that, um, you know, they're still working. They're, they decided that they would, um, you know, not take the break and they would continue to pay down their debt. Um, People preparing for um, a shifting interest rate environment. You know, I think these are all really interesting factors. People who have, you know, children, they're saving right now um, in preparation for that uncertainty that we see before us. 
you know, I still think that, you know, looking at a college education is is very important for for many people. But we need to find a way and these educational institutions need to find a way that they can not only get people into the institution, but out of the institution. No longer can a student graduate in four years. Something like 40% of students are in school for more than four years. When I was in college, granted this was 25 years ago, it was unthinkable to go more than four years. But right now, it's, it's the norm. And it's because the peak, you know, students can't get their classes or they need to take all kinds of courses to get up to speed because they, you know, didn't get it in high school or, you know, all kinds of other factors. But I think colleges are going to have to think long and hard about how they're recruiting the students and more importantly, how they're retaining these students. So there are a lot of factors at play here, a lot of uncertainty in the market. And what does the market hate more than anything is uncertainty. So, uh, you know, I appreciate all the feedback, the talk and text line, um, which is always open, 855-616-1620. Continue to give your feedback. When we come back, we're going to wrap the show. Man, this time really flies by when you're having fun. I am Tracy Johnson, in for Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. Welcome back on WTMJ. I'm Tracy Johnson, in for Jeff Wagner today and on Friday from 12 to 3. So we there were a lot of topics that, that I did not get to cover. I was kind of joking or laughing. Actually, I think, Rachel, you were laughing at me because I have a stack of papers when I come into the studio that um, is my prep for the show. I think you killed about three trees, but okay. it's fine. Oh my God. I am going to get so much hate mail for that. I thought uh, the, some of this controversial stuff that I'm talking about today, but that is probably the most controversial. Yes, I did probably kill a lot of trees, but it's recycled paper. Um, <laughs> it's recycled paper. Um, but I have a lot of uh, great topics that we'll have in store on Friday. I always like to end the show on a lighter note because really my my focus is, you know, business, um, the economy, uh, you know, real estate. I really like digging into these issues. These are the issues that I'm really passionate about. Um, and I know this, this very intelligent and smart audience um, likes to interact on. I have to thank everyone who weighed in on that. But one of the things that I am also very passionate about is, is sports. You wouldn't know it. And very specifically is NBA basketball, which I don't know if you all caught that game last night. That was an early game in Philadelphia. Um, but the Bucks are incredible. And specifically, you know, our very own Giannis Antetokounmpo. I mean, he is so much fun. You have a few more opportunities to check out the Bucks in the regular season at the Pfizer Forum. If you haven't been there yet, it is a very pre-COVID experience when you go into that uh, stadium right now. It is awesome. It is electric. It is on fire. You can get tickets anywhere in the arena on you know the Ticketmaster and StubHub because I believe that many of the games are sold out. And I know that the playoff games are going to be uh, crazy on fire. And and a lot of you are probably checking this out um, at the Mecca or the Deer District, which is just so much fun. And we barely had the opportunity to take advantage of uh, before the COVID shutdown. Uh, But the other sport that I love not only to play, but to watch is golf. And 
I happen to follow the Masters Twitter feed um, and Tiger Woods, and I am hearing that he is practicing on the course. Now, of of course, this is creating uh, great speculation with the Masters coming up. Um, You know, is he going to be playing? You know, obviously, he hasn't he hasn't played in two, three years um, since his accident. He The last time he played on a PGA Tour was in 2020, uh, November of 2020. Um, he has been in and out of rehab um, for, gosh, as long as I can remember. And of course, this last incident we thought was going to be not just career ending, but many people didn't know if he was really going to pull out of this. Um, a few weeks ago, I was watching, um, I was mostly watching online. He participated in his, in a tournament with his son. And I love watching this. There's nothing that I love more than seeing, you know, a father and son enjoying a game together, you know, whether it's basketball or in this case, golf, his son, Charlie, who's 12 years old, uh, they played in a, um, uh, a, a tournament together and I loved watching all of the similarities and how they uh, you know, played so well together. And um, if you haven't checked it out, I encourage you to do so. I think, you know, as Tiger Woods, as controversial of a figure as he has been from time to time throughout his career, I just think he is the master of the game. And truth be told, he's the reason that I am interested in golf. He's somebody that I've watched, I've grown up with, um, you know, in watching this this great game of golf. And so I touched on basketball. I touched on golf. Um, maybe we'll have breaking news at some point um, in the next week or so if Tiger Woods is going to be joining the, the tournament. Um, he's not going to be going on the tour, but maybe he'll play in one or two games. If anything else, he'll be a present as he always is. Um, and then we move to baseball because we've got a game coming up at three o'clock. The Brewers in a preseason spring training game play the Padres today at three o'clock. Stick around. It's been a great uh, being with you this afternoon. We'll talk to you on Friday at noon. I am Tracy Johnson in for Jeff Wagner on WTMJ.